We're starting James chapter 5. We're really moving along. Uh, now, James chapter 5, uh, the, there's the first section we're going to be looking at tonight, verses 1 through 6. I really wanted to pair it with the next sec section because it really does tie together in a really neat way. But once I got into the study and began to prepare, I began to realize there's just no way that I could do, get it all in tonight. Well, I could. Uh, but there'd be nobody here when I finished <laughs> because you'd all be sayonara, Pastor Dave. <laughs> it would be uh, pretty lengthy trying to fit it all in. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 tonight. And, uh, and it may feel like it's a little bit cut short, but that's because it really goes into next, next week. And then we'll pick it up there la next week. In 1923... A group of, uh, an elite group of businessmen met at the luxurious Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. The roster included some of the most influential, famous, and wealthy moguls of the early 20th, early, early 20th century. The, these men were, were among them. Charles M. Schwab, president of Bethlehem Steel Corporation. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Albert Fall, Secretary of the Interior under President Harding, Jesse Livermore, Wall Street tycoon, and Ivor Kruger, head of a global monopoly of match manufacturers, which I had no idea there was ever a global monopoly of match manufacturers until I read this today. But these, these men, uh, just, just this small list here, these heavy hitters controlled more wealth than, than the total assets of the United States Treasury at the time. Surely these men would become uh, models of the entrepreneurial spirit, spirit and stellar examples of financial success. But, but if you fast forward about 25 years or so and look back on the courses of their lives, you begin to, to, to find that it was a little different. Charles Schwab, Schwab died $300,000 in debt in 1939. Mr. Whitney served time in, at Sing Sing Prison for embezzlement. Albert Fall served time for misconduct in office, leaving behind a ruined reputation. Uh, um, Jesse Livermore committed suicide in 1940, describing himself as a failure. And Ivor Kruger shot himself in 1932 after his global monopoly collapsed. Buried beneath the rubble of humiliation, defeat, crime, sickness, and financial collapse, these men, along with a number of their colleagues, died, excuse me, died in a depressing, pitiable condition. Their wealth, their power and prestige did nothing to soothe the personal anxiety and guilt they suffered in life. And the reality is that great intelligence and hard work can make a person wealthy, but it takes God-given wisdom and supernatural humility to be able to manage wealth and influence and handle it properly. In James chapter 3, verses 13, all the way through verse 6 of chapter 5 here, James has been developing a theme that real faith produces genuine humility. And we've already heard James remind us that our goodness comes from God-given wisdom, not from our own. He called us to turn to God, not ourselves, for peaceful relationships. And, and he also warned us against playing God instead of submitting to God's sovereignty. We talked about that last week. And and now, what we're going to be reading today, in this passage, James rails against the pride that so easily deludes the wealthy of the world. And I know some of us are sitting here and we say, oh, he's going to talk to wealthy people. It can't be a bee. 
And I know you're not wealthy in, in the uh, eyes of the United States, but by, world, by the world standards, everybody that I see in this room, you're wealthy beyond the imagination of many people in this world. So that means we need to pay attention to what James says to these wealthy, wealthy people. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll break it down as we go along. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. That's not, a, <laughs> that's not one of our happy verses, is it? You don't, you don't see that one on a coffee cup at the Christian bookstore. Uh, verse 2, your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Very harsh passage of scripture. And James begins by uh, calling his wealthy readers to attention. He says, now listen. And it's almost as if he's expecting them to be slumbering in some sort of, uh, in their ease. And he wants to wake them up. So he says, listen up, pay attention here. And in verse four, uh, 13 of chapter 4, we, we talked about uh, this last week. In that passage, he addressed people who spent their days as if, God weren't their Lord. And now in this passage, he addresses those who spend their money as if he weren't their master. Now, this is the first time in this letter that James has directly addressed wealthy people in this letter. He has mentioned them twice. In verse 10 and 11 of chapter 1, he said that the rich man should take pride in his low position because he will fade away in the midst of his pursuits like grass withering in the scorching wind. And then in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he scolded those who favor the wealthy over the poor because the rich and powerful are the ones who tended to persecute Christians. So he's talked about them and he's mentioned them, but now he's directly addressing them. And, and the people he's really addressing here, it's unlikely that he's talking to Christians who are wealthy in this situation, but he's targeting the unbelieving rich who are oppressing the, the poor in these verses one through six. And these are the same people that he mentioned in passing in chapter two, verses six and seven. And so what does he say to this group? He starts off by saying, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Now the, the word translated weep means to respond to disaster in a rightful manner. Uh, it means to weep from the depths of one's being in grief and remorse. This is really talking about repentance. I think this is one of the reasons why we, uh, most scholars believe that he's addressing wealthy people who are not Christians, not followers of Christ, because they haven't repented uh, of their, their sins. So he says weep, and that's what that means. But then he also says to wail, and the word translated wail literally means to howl. And the word is, is, it's what's called an onomatopoeia. Anybody ever heard of that phrase before? That's a word. <laughs> Somebody's laughing. Yes, it is funny. It's a funny sounding word. But what it is, a, an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it is. 
And so when you were, and I can't pronounce the word in, in the original language, but if you were to pronounce the word, it would sound like I was howling. That's, that's the idea behind it. And, and, uh, but the, it means to howl, especially as a result of a sudden and unexpected evil and regret. Uh, so again, it's talking about regret. It's talking about repentance. And then James gives us, and we're going to break these down a little bit more, but he gives us five reasons for the wealthy landowners to weep. The first he talks in this passage, he says, tells us that wealth is temporal and it's subject to the ravages of time. We'll talk more about that in, in a moment. And uh, he, he, he mentions that another reason why they should weep and wail is that they were guilty of hoarding their riches. And specifically, and it does make a difference, he specifically says that they were hoarding their riches in the end times. We'll talk about the significance of that. The third, they're, they're guilty of crimes against the poor. They weren't paying their wages. They were, he talks about murdering the, the innocent. Um, and then he goes on and says they will be judged and condemned for this selfish use of temporal goods. And, um, you know, the, the wealthy, uh, wicked people were living in the lap of luxury, indulging in, in pleasures and, and fattening not just their bellies, but their hearts as well. And he paints a picture of a person trying to satisfy the deepest longings of his heart by sort of a playboy lifestyle. And like a pig being fattened for slaughter, these wealthy people didn't even know that as they selfishly gorged themselves on the pleasures of life, that they are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. And then the fifth thing was they, they have been adding to the material treasure as if the world would go on forever. This is again the idea of doing this in the end times, uh, not, not realizing that there's something different to come, that there's more to come beyond this life. And he makes the point that a lack of judgment today does not mean a lack of judgment tomorrow. You know, just because I do something today and I get away with it doesn't mean I'm never going to answer for that. That's the idea that he's saying here. Then throughout this passage, James sort of holds the warning of end times judgment over the heads of the, these wealthy people. And the, 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 the believer's judgment is, is behind him because Christ bore the full punishment of death paying for, for all of our sins on the cross. So our judgment is behind us because Christ carried our judgment. He took our judgment on himself. But, but the unbeliever's judgment is, is in front of him. It's in the future. It's ahead of him. And the one who dies rejecting Christ faces not only end time suffering if he's alive during the last days, but he also faces eternal judgment after he's condemned at the great white throne judgment. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So, you know, for a season, it may appear that the wicked get away with prospering at the expense of others. And if you look at the world today, you would say, yep, that's happening. You would say, yes, there are wealthy people that are getting wealthier. Um, and the reason they're doing that is because they are oppressing other people. I mean, you, there, there are slave camps, slave labor camps in, in, uh, in China, for example. So we know that that's happening. But it may appear for a while that they're getting away with it. But we have to remember that this life is not all there is. So even if they never face judgment in this life, in the end, their wicked deeds will be remembered. And that's part of what James is talking about. So now I want to say this, and I think this is important for us because, you know, I know we're, we're wealthy by the world standards, but, but by, the, by U.S. standards, we're not, we're not wealthy. There's nobody in this room that I'm seeing that I would say was wealthy. Um, 
But so it's important for us to remember this. While the rich are invited to weep and wail, I want you to notice that the poor are not invited to gloat. See, because that's the tendency when the, when the wealthy and powerful are, are uh, you know, when the, they're finally downfallen, the tendency for us is to want to gloat over it. Ah, they finally got their own. And the Bible really doesn't give any room for that um, in this, here or anywhere else. Um, we, we have to remember that our own submission to God never allows us to move very far from repentance and humility ourselves. And anytime I start cheering on for somebody else's failure or somebody else's judgment, then I'm putting myself in a position where, uh, well, in, to a certain degree, a position of pride. And, and if I'm going to be submitted to God, I, I have to, I can't, I can't stray from repentance and, and, and humility before God. And whatever our position on the financial scale, allegiance to Jesus Christ ought, ought to make a difference in the way we live. And so if I'm a follower of Jesus and I see somebody uh, who's wealthy and who has uh, profited off of other people, in, in, if they fall, if, they're, if they, their kingdom comes crashing down, so to speak, instead of looking at that and gloating and, and being happy about that, instead I, I should allow the grace of Christ to change my heart to such a degree to where I pray uh, and say, Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, that this experience will help them to humble themselves before you, that they'll find salvation. That's ultimately what we want. And that's ultimately the answer. You know, people talk about politics in America and we're so divided now. But you know, some of the, one of the things that we as Christians forget is that ultimately the answer for all of the things that we're concerned about and the things that we want to see changed or uh, the ultimate answer is for those people to come to know Christ. Those that are in power, those that are in positions where they make laws. You know, when we have unjust laws, um, uh, then, the, you know, you can work to change the law, and you should. But ultimately, the answer is for those that are making those laws to come to Christ. That's what changes things. It's the change of the heart that brings that. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine what would happen if, if uh, Nancy Pelosi and Charles Schumer and and Joe Biden all had a tremendous encounter with the Holy Spirit that changed their lives. That, that's really the answer, that we have to remember that. Let's read on verse 2. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. The, the, the instability of wealth is very clear in this passage. Uh, goods that rot and are ruined and possessions that break and rust, they're all reminders or indicators of the impermanence of life. That's what, he, what he's saying. He's saying, you know, these things that you're counting on, they're not going to last. Um, there, there are constant reminders in life all along the way. Things like sickness and death of others that we love and disasters they're constant reminders that, that, that we need to find security in what's eternal because there are things that, I mean, after you've lived a few years, you begin to realize that nothing lasts forever, right? How many of you, you know, you get a new car and it just seems like you turn around and it's old and you get new clothes. The next thing you know, it's, they're worn out. You, 
you, you get a new house and pretty soon you've got to do repairs on it. And, and you begin to realize these are all reminders to us that this is all temporary. This is all temporary. And, and misery will be the result of ignoring all of those indicators of impermanence. Now, again, as we've seen multiple times, James sounds a lot like Jesus, which again, he's a half-brother, so he heard Jesus' teaching, so there's no surprise when there's something similar. But he sounds a lot like Jesus when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So again, very similar kind of idea to James. And really, both Jesus and James are both dealing with matters of priorities. And we're, we're faced with a decision. Are you going to spend your life chasing after things that don't last? Or are you going to invest your life in things that will last forever? Money, security, lavishness, and self-indulgence, they're as good as already rotted because they can do nothing for us in eternity. They have no value in eternity. And these rich people, we're, we're told they hoarded everything they could get their hands on. You know, in, in those days, a person could display his or her, her wealth in three ways. And, and James really addresses all three of them. Uh, they could, they could put their wealth on display by feasting lavishly, by dressing extravagantly and by spending wildly. And all I have to say is some things never change because that's still how people put their wealth on display. They, they, they hoarded their clothing. They were not willing to give their excess to the poor. They had so many pieces of clothing, which was a huge luxury in those days that before they, they were worn out by, by, from wearing them, the, marth, uh, the moth larvae, larvae had eaten them. Now, you remember, you need to remember, this letter was addressed to people in a society where a poor man probably had one cloak. More than likely, that's all, all he had. And so, you know, you had people that needed clothing and they were going without clothing and the wealthy people had so much that they couldn't even wear them all without before the moths destroyed them. They also hoarded gold and silver. Precious metals had been hoarded away. They had, and what that means is they had been unused. When it is kept from being used to help others, wealth corrodes. And it uses that, that and this is a, a, an image that uh, has, is used historically in different places, uh, not just in the Bible, but, but it, it really... It really is speaking about the idea of it being wasted. Uh, because uh, although silver and gold cannot actually corrode, they can tarnish. And, and that's the idea behind it. And the tarnish testifies to how long the gold and silver have been kept untouched. Because if it's out, if it's used, if, you're, if it's in circulation, it's not going to tarnish. So the idea here is that you've got this gold and silver piling up that there's, you're not doing anything with it. And so therefore it's tarnishing in the, uh, it, it, wherever you've got it stored. And, and, and that even what seems most indestructible is doomed if it's not put to good use. And we have to remember and this is a huge principle for us. God gives to us so that we can use those gifts to bless other people. And God had given these gifts of wealth to these people, but they were not using it to bless other people. They were hoarding it to themselves selfishly. And, 
you know, we, we struggle uh, with, with that whole idea of that, that God gives to us so that we can get, use those gifts to bless other people. We struggle with that when we have what, what I would call an inflation mindset. And what I mean by an inflation mindset is that the, the greater the inflated value of things that do not last, then the greater the level of disappointment when I lose them. So if something is not permanent, if it's not lasting, if I inflate that to a level that, uh, of great importance, then when I lose it, my disappointment is going to be that much higher. But if I look at it properly and understand this is temporary, this is only for this world. It does me no good in eternity. It does me no good standing before Christ. It does nothing for me after my life. If I look at that and begin to realize that it's important, but it's not nearly up there the way a lot of other things, other things are, then, then the, when I lose it, the level of disappointment is going to be lower as well. It's this inflated value that we placed on things. And if you struggle with the idea of giving, then you probably have an inflated value of things that just don't last. And you're, you're holding too tightly to things that just don't matter in the, in the scheme of eternity. And that's what we do. We have to try to learn to live life holding the things that we have loosely, with, live with open hands. But we have a tendency to begin to close our hands around those things that we own our wealth, our, our, our material goods, whatever it might be, and we close our hands on it. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Whenever I close my hand around anything and say, God, you can have anything else, but just don't touch this, then I have just given birth to an idol. And I'm holding it in my hand. And that's the challenge for us to, especially in the culture in which we live, uh, it's a challenge for us to learn to hold lightly to the things of this world. The, the fact that their gold and silver was corroded, which again means unused, that was a testimony. You remember how it said, I'm going to read it again. It said, their, their corrosion, talking about the, your gold, I'll read it again, verse 3, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. What does that mean? It means that when, when the tarnish that's on the gold and silver there is a testimony that they did not care enough about the people around them to do something with the wealth that they had. So it was going to testify against them. And, and we go back to a verse that we talked about. Actually, I think it was the final verse from last week. Um, they failed to do good with what they had. And, and what did James say about if you know to do good but don't do it? That is sin, he said. So they failed to do good with what they had, and that was sin. And their greed was, in fact, going to destroy them because they didn't have an eternal view. James said they were hoarding wealth in the last days. Another translation, I like the way it says it, it says, you have piled up wealth in an age that is near its close. In other words, you've piled up wealth here in this world, and this wealth is only good in this world, and this world is about to end. It's, it's going to come to an end. This, this age is about over. We're in the end times, and you've piled up wealth, and you've forgotten the fact that this world is not all there is. 
And uh, it, they just didn't have that end time perspective. They viewed their wealth as something that they should hoard and they should use for their own pleasure. And that was, that was all. Not, not, they didn't care about using it for anything else. Now, I want to say this. Wealth is, is to be enjoyed as a blessing from God. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. And, you know, when you have some money and you, you say, well, let's go, let's go. You have to be wealthy to do this. You say, let's go watch a movie with the family. And it costs the arm and a leg just to get into the movie and then buy popcorn. And I mean, you're going to, you, you better have some money in the bank to do that. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with enjoying those things in life and enjoying the blessings that God has given to you. Uh, but we have to remember, even in the process of that, 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 uh, that those blessings were ultimately designed to, to fulfill the will of God in meeting needs around us and advancing the gospel around the world. The, the principle is this, and this goes back, this goes back to Abraham. Remember, remember God said to him, he said that you're, you're going to be the, uh, he was going to bless him, is what he said. And, and that he was going to be a father of, of many nations. And then he goes on and he says, and you will be a blessing to the nations. Here's the principle. You are blessed to be a blessing. That's the principle behind it all. So if we look at the blessing and all we do is consume it and it ends on us, it terminates on me. If my blessing terminates on me, then I've missed the point of the blessing at all. And I'm forgetting the source of the blessing. And, I'm, I'm, and, and, and so, again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings of God. But at the same time, we have to remember the real reason I'm blessed is so that can, I can be a blessing. And we show that we are faithful servants when we grasp the concept that God gives us more so that we can give more away. We can do more. We can, we can spread the gospel further. That's why he gives us more. Now, here's the question, because every, every teaching can be taken to extremes, and, and we need to find, figure out you know, what is right and reasonable, what the Bible actually teaches. But, but there would be some that would say, well, that means... I should not worry about saving money at all. So does this principle that we are blessed to be a blessing teach that we should not ever even try to save money? Well, no, because that goes against other places in the scripture where it talks about the wisdom of saving money. So, so James's warnings, they're not going in opposition to other places in the scripture. And he's not warning against saving money. What he is talking about is the kind of selfish hoarding that affects not only the person, but, the, but everyone else in the person's life. So he's, that's what he's talking about, is a selfishness, uh, not, not a, a sense of responsibility and wisdom from saving. And there are benefits. There are benefits of saving. It, it demonstrates good stewardship of the resources provided by God. Um, saving makes a person able to respond to the needs of others. See, see that's the thing. It, 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 you know, it's not just about saving so that I can consume it whenever I want to later. But it's also putting myself in a position to where when a person, a brother or sister in Christ, needs some help, then I have some money that I can say, okay, I'm going to pull some out of there so that I can give it in this situation. So saving actually puts me in a position where I can then respond to the needs of others more easily. But if I don't save, 
And, you know, if you're like me and you're, you know, a lot of what you do paycheck to paycheck is just, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck. If you don't save anything and the need arises, you just don't have anything to give. So saving puts you in that position. Saving assumes that God, that God sometimes provides for, for people through other people. And again, it makes you the person when you say, well, I'm going to put myself in a position where God can use me to provide for somebody else. Um, saving is, is responsible preparation for tomorrow. And saving promotes wise spending decisions because instead of uh, frivolously spending your money, you're going to say, no, I'm going to set this aside first. In fact, I, one of the great things that, that anybody can do is, is start off by saying, okay, when it comes to money, the very first thing I do, 10% at least goes to God. And the next thing you can do is say, 10% goes into savings. Boom, you have to pay yourself like a bill. And then I live on the rest. And ultimately, actually, I, I think you'll find that if you, you'll, you'll discover God's faithfulness is so powerful that, that you'll probably get to the point where you say, you know what, uh, my tithe, the tithe belongs to the Lord. I'm going to give that to him, but I, he's so faithful. I'm going to do more of that. And, you'll, and maybe you'll get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to give 20% to the Lord and I'm going to save 10% or 15%. I'm going to live on the rest. But whatever budget you set, the thing is, once you do that, we tend to find a way to live either up or down to the budget where, that, we, that we set for ourselves. So it, that's why saving pr can pr promote wise spending decisions because you can say, no, 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 I'm not going to spend that on something foolish here. I'm going to save it uh, because I, I know I'm going to need that later. And somebody else might need it later. But there are also, you have benefits of saving, but you also have the dangers of hoarding. So this is the difference. You've got saving and you also have hoarding. Hoarding is where I, I keep saving and saving and save it, but I never do anything with it. I never help anybody. I just, it's all about me. And uh, hoarding fosters a sense of earthly security and it fosters a sense of independence from God. If I can get enough, I don't have to worry. I don't need God. It also pr pr promotes a sense of superiority over others. Well, you know, I've got so much more than them. I'm so much smarter than them. Or it assumes that, a, that what a person gains is only for that person's benefit, that it's all for me. It's all about me. And hoarding is also uh, irresponsible indulgence for today. And it promotes impulsive spending decisions because, again, because you're always focused on yourself, then your spending habits will always be about what you want and focus on yourself. So what's the antidote to hoarding? Well, the first thing is to live in submission to God. That's where it starts. You submit to God, you submit your, your wealth to Him, your, your money to Him. Second, you live in awareness of and in response to God's grace. You realize that every good gift that you have is a gift of God's grace. And so you're aware of that and you respond to that. You, you live in sensitivity to the needs of others. You make sure you're aware. You pay attention to what's going on around you. And then, you know, the, res the response to that then is to live to meet the needs of others, that you, that you do what you can to help them. And then number five, you know, we've kind of touched on this. This is so important for us. We have to live with a view of eternity. I have to live and manage my resources with the, with the idea in mind, with a view in mind to understand that I'm not living for this life alone. But more importantly, I'm, I'm investing in eternity. 
And I'm living for eternity. I'm, I'm living with my eye on, on, on an eternity with God. And if that's the case, then it doesn't matter how much money I have in my savings account, right? Let's look at verse 4. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen or have, who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. So these workmen worked for rich people during the day. And it wasn't like, you know, now what generally happens today is you get a job and you work and most people get paid like every two weeks or maybe twice a month or something like that. Or maybe you, you know, you get paid a paycheck every week or whatever it might be. Well, that's not how it was back in those days because they would hire you for the day. There's still places out, uh, out west, particularly uh, at harvest time, that sort of thing, where they do this. But, but uh, they would hire people, and you, you can see this in some of the stories and parables of Jesus as well. But they would hire a worker to go out and work in the field, and at the end of the day they would get paid for that day's work. And, and these people who were working, they were poor people, most, most likely, many of them, this is very common, uh, they had been forced off of their own land by foreclosures, um, and then they ended up hiring themselves out to the wealthy holder of a huge estate. So, you know, they would be foreclosed, they'd lose their property and uh, due to debt, and then the, the wealthy people who then assumed ownership of the property, they would end up, you know, basically hiring themselves out to work the land that used to be there. It's a horrible situation. Um, but workers like this, here's what we have to remember. They lived on the verge of starvation. Today's wages bought tomorrow's food. You know, they didn't have refrigerators where they could keep their leftovers. Um, and, and, and they were living literally day to day and if they didn't get paid today, then their family was not going to eat tomorrow because today's wages bought tomorrow's food. And if a worker did not receive his pay, his whole family went hungry. And if the owner refused to pay for whatever reason, either, either be, because he wanted to hoard it until the end of the harvest and in order to make sure the workers came, kept coming back because they're like, well, if I pay him now, then, then what if they don't come back tomorrow? Then I won't have any workers out there. So maybe they were doing that or maybe they're just doing it because they were just flat out ornery and mean. There are people like that. You probably, maybe you know somebody like that. Or, or maybe, maybe they were just so so greedy that they just defaulted completely. They said, I'll pay you this much if you work. And then they had no intention of ever paying at all. Well, in any of those situations, the problem was there was really little to nothing that the workmen could do. Because if they complained about it, then that might mean the loss of a job or they might end up being blacklisted and other landowners wouldn't hire them. And so they were, could be in a bad situation. And they certainly you know, couldn't go out and hire a lawyer and go to court and that sort of thing. But, uh, but James is saying in this situation that both the withheld wages and the workers are crying out to God because there was no excuse for lack of payment. These workmen had harvested heaps of grain that would be sold, but the rich were still withholding payment to the workmen. And the only resource that the poor had was to call out to God. And, and, and he says here, the name of God translated in the NIV, it calls God Almighty. 
that is literally the Lord of hosts. And anytime you see the Lord of hosts, you need to understand this. The host represents the armies of God. So the, the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts means he's talking about the one who commands the armies of heaven. And, and that phrase really conjures up the image of God going to war against the wealthy to defend his oppressed poor. And, it, you know, that's a very comforting image to all Christians who are suffering unjustly around the world today. And there are Christians all over this world, particularly in communist nations and in Muslim nations, uh, that are suffering greatly for the cause of Christ. But to know that the Lord of hosts is going to fight on their behalf brings comfort to them. God is the Lord of hosts and he will lead the armies of heaven in defense of his children. So, so what are the implications for us uh, knowing that God is the Lord of hosts? Well, it means if we're facing opposition, then faith requires that we remember God is our strength. God is my defender. I can trust him. I can rest in him. I can have peace in him because I know he's, he's ultimately in charge. And it also reminds me that temporary circumstances don't change the fact that God is sovereign. It doesn't change the fact that one day, whether I see it in my lifetime or not, that God's, God's judgment will be passed and his right judgment. It will be perfect judgment. And God will ensure that justice will be done and he'll judge the oppressors. Um, all the while, by the way, those oppressors at any time have the opportunity to repent before God, to weep and wail in His presence. They have the opportunity at any time. They can put judgment behind them by accepting the judgment at the cross instead of leaving it out ahead of them to, to absorb on their own. Well, James says that these wealthy people have, have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Um, and here's what I know. The availability of resources and, and credit, the, that, those things can quickly have us as, as, as human beings redefining luxuries as necessities. The, the, the more we have, the more we begin to think of luxuries, things that we used to consider luxuries, now we begin to think of them as necessities. Very easy for that to happen. You know, I mean, like, I'll give you one, cable TV. That's a luxury. And yet, most of us treat it more like a necessity. Anyway, I'll quit meddling. But what are the, the marks of self-indulgence? Um Self-indulgent, we might be self-indulgent, we, well, not might be, we are self-indulgent when we assume that wealth should always be used only to meet our needs. Um, if, if it's only about me, then it's, very, it's a very clear and easy indicator to see I'm self-indulgent because I don't care about anybody else. Uh, we're self-indulgent when we visualize wealth as a protection or insulation between us and the rest of the world. We're self-indulgent when we waste and destroy and discard what other people could put to good use. We're self-indulgent when we display smugness or pride at the differences between what we have and what others have. We're like, oh, well, I, you know, I'm an, they're, they're not in the same class as me. 
a life of luxury and self-indulgence, listen, it is essentially worthless. Why is that? It's because money will mean nothing when Christ returns. It will mean nothing, which is good news for the poor because that means you don't have to have a certain amount of money to measure up to a standard. And it's also a relief to the rich because they realize, man, okay, I don't have to, I don't have to wonder how much is enough for me to be saved. Money will mean nothing when Christ returns. So we should spend our time accumulating treasures that will be worthwhile in God's eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus talked about. He said, he said lay up your treasure in heaven, not on earth. We read that a few moments ago. See, in the middle of it all, though, we have to remember money is not the problem. We, we all need money, right? Anybody here you don't need money? Brewer doesn't need money. That's because mom and dad have it. But we, we need money. We all need money uh, to live, to support our families, to, do, do, to live day to day. Missionaries, they need money to help them effectively spread the gospel. Churches need money to do their work effectively. Uh, so money is not the problem. Uh, it's the love of money that leads to evil and it causes some people to oppress others to get more. Um, you know, I mean, God is not against the pleasure. He's not against pleasure. He's not against entertainment. He's not against beautiful things. I mean, all of those things are things He created, right? Have you ever seen a, a sunset? Uh, especially you know, like on the coastline, you, you see that or you see a sunset over the mountains. I mean, it is beautiful. So God is not against beautiful things because he created some breathtakingly beautiful things. That's not it. But we have to remember that my pleasure, my entertainment, my enjoyment of beautiful things, all, all of it has to be submitted to him. James says, that these wealthy people had fattened themselves in the day of slaughter. I mean, they were cleaning up on the disasters of other, other people. They didn't care about anyone. They were totally selfish and selfish, uh, self-centered. And, and, and we have to remember, selfishness is a dangerous fattening of our hearts. We want what we want, and we don't care what, other, what happens to other people. That's the thing that James is condemning here. And he says that they condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. And they were probably Christians that he was referring to. And, and it's possible that they were active murders. It's, may, it's possible that inconvenient people uh, may indeed have been murdered. But in most cases, it was probably more of a passive situation. More often than not, poor people who could not pay their debts were then thrown into prison by the wealthy people or, or they were forced to sell all of their possessions and then with no means of support and no opportunity to work off their debts, these poor people and their families often died of starvation. And the wealthy people didn't lift a finger, didn't care. That's what James is, is condemning here. Here's the crazy thing is in, that, in their unjust system, all that was legal. All that was legal. And I've heard people justify their actions by saying, well, it's legal. But we need to know human law does not determine right and wrong in God's eyes. Human law does not require love. Human law cannot require genuine concern for our neighbors. But God's law does. And God's character demands a higher order of living from us. 
He determines right and wrong. Human laws should be, the goal should be to get them to line up to that. Now, here's, here's the thing. All of this that I'm talking about, I want to I bring it to this here as we come near to the end. As Christians, in the wealthiest nation in, the, in human history, and we live in the United States, this is by far the wealthiest nation that has ever existed and it's not even, a, it's not even close. As Christians in this nation, we bear a responsibility to understand both the power and the peril of our wealth and to use that wealth responsibly. The power and the peril of wealth. Our wealth, the peril side of it is that it can make us think that we are independent of God, that we don't need God. I mean, that's really where our nation is. There's so many people that just don't even really see a need for God because we have so much. Um holding too tightly to the things we own can cause us to ignore God even when he's pleading with our souls. Uh, the peril of it is that we can become self-centered. And as self-centered people, we, we can easily ignore the, people, the needs of the people around us. And that kind of behavior we know from what James is saying, that kind of behavior brings judgment from God. And, and that judgment doesn't come because you have wealth. It comes because you don't recognize the source of your wealth and you don't use that wealth the way that he wants you to, the, the way that honors him and builds the kingdom. So we've got to guard against the temptation to become greedy and, and insist on more and more and more and more. And I want to close with this, with just the simple question. How are you doing? And I think anytime we get into the word of God, we have to ask that, a question similar to that, how am I doing in this? And, and make it a prayer and say, Lord, show me how I'm doing. Because we know that our hearts can lie to us, that we are easily deceived by our own heart, by our own pride will lie to us and tell us I'm doing great. But we have to ask ourselves, how am I doing? Am I holding too tightly to the things of the world? Am I, am I too worried about losing the things that I have? Is, is God been dealing with me about maybe downsizing on some of the things that I have or things that I'm, that I'm paying for, subscriptions that I have, whatever it is, and I'm resisting that because I, I, I want the entertainment more. Are you, are you focused on the temporary things of this world instead of the eternal things of God? These are important questions. We have to constantly ask ourselves because it's so easy for us to slip into this at any time. We've got to learn to, to use the resources that God has given to us wisely and learn what it means to invest in the eternal things of God. That's, what, that's the key. Don't, don't live this life as if this is all there is. I think you could sum it up with that. This is not all there is. This life is not it. This world is not all there is. There is more beyond this world. There is way more beyond this life. And in fact, if I put my time of life on this earth, my time on this earth, uh, my lifetime on a line, and then put eternity next to that, I begin to realize that my time on this earth is not even a, not even a blip compared to eternity. And yet, it's so easy to get caught up into living for that little blip. So don't live this life as if all there is. 
Let's learn to live life with an eternal perspective. Saying, I want to use all of the resources God has given me to invest in things that will last forever. If we do that, then we don't have to worry about what James has talked about here. If we don't, then we better pay attention to what he's saying. Next week, we're going to get into verse 7 because um, he really ties these two together because he's saying that judgment is coming for the wealthy people if they don't repent. And then he goes on and tells the Christians in response to that, you need to be patient. But we don't have time to get into that. So we'll get it started in that next week. But let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for every blessing that you pour out in our lives. And, and God, you, you have blessed us when we stop and think about it, we begin to realize that we are blessed beyond our own human comprehension. We're, we're blessed way, way beyond anything we deserve. We know that. And that's why we call it a blessing. But God, I just pray you'd help us to recognize all that you've given to us is a blessing from you. And remember that you have blessed us so that we can be a blessing. And Lord, I pray that you teach us to walk that way, to live in faith in that way. And as we do... I know, God, that you will continue to bless us because we have proven ourselves faithful in the small things. Therefore, you can lead us on to true riches. God, I pray you teach us what it means to live with our eyes on, on eternity instead of just this life. And we give you praise for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.